Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening. Welcome to How to Make Dubai, circa 1960. Thank you to the Institute. I began with good evening, but it might be good morning or good afternoon, depending on where everybody is. I hope you're all right that your near and dear ones are reasonably well too, given the state of the world that we're sort of grappling with at this point. My name is Deepak Kunikrishnan. I am the Assistant Arts Professor at Literature and Creative Writing at NYU Bulabi, and I'm also a writer. And today it is my privilege and honor to introduce Todd Rees to you. What I'm going to do is I'm just gonna read his bio, uh, which is important, but before I do that, um, I'm gonna add a qualifier. Todd wants it to be clear that he's not someone who just parachuted into Dubai and left. Um, he cares about the city. He's been visiting since 2006. And the book Showpiece City, which he's going to be talking about and presenting on, is relevant. On to the bio. After I read the bio, Todd will be presenting slash reflecting for 30 to 45 minutes. And then we move on to Q&A right after that, which I will be moderating. My advice to all of you tuning in is to place your questions in the Q&A box while he's presenting, especially if anything seems relevant to you that you'd like him to talk about later on. And I will do my best to address those questions. All right, then, to the bio. Todd Rees is an architect and writer based in Amsterdam, which is where he's joining us from today. His work examines the global practice of architecture, specifically how the architect circulates technologies and cultural narratives. His recent book, Showpiece City, How Architecture Made Dubai, Stanford University Press, explores architecture's packaging to sell Dubai on a global stage. He's also co-editing Building Sharjah, an archival investigation of the city's vanishing 20th century landscape. Reese has served as a Louis Kahn visiting assistant professor in design in School of Architecture and as a guest faculty member at Harvard Graduate School of Design. From 2012 to 2017, he was the Rose visiting assistant professor in urban studies at Yale. At the architecture firm OMA, or OMA, I should have asked him how to pronounce this, my apologies, Reese led the office's first entry at the Venice Architecture Biennial which focused on Gulf cities and edited Almanach and Almanach II, Gulf Continued, two definitive explorations of Arab cities in the Gulf region. His work has been featured in several Venice architectural biennials, the Istanbul Design Biennial, Sharjah Biennial 13, and publications such as The Guardian, Perspecta, Blog, Jadalia, Architectural Design, and Art Forum. We should catch a breath simply because that's a lot to digest, but they're important details. <laughs> thank you, Deepak, for the uh, introduction. And thank you to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for inviting me to be here today. I'd also like to specifically say thank you to uh, Nahid Ahmed uh, for making sure that I could be here and that I presume all of you could be here as well. I do have slides. I just need to bring a quick moment uh, to bring them up. Uh, 
and I hope you can see them. Uh, I presume I'll hear from my colleagues if, if, if they can't hear me. That's one second. There we go. How to make a city. That was the title for my presentation today. And I have to confess upfront that I cannot deliver on this title. I am an architect, as Deepak mentioned, and therefore I'm led to believe that design and organization and persuasive presentations, all of these things should be able to be marshaled into making a city. To make a city, however, is a modernist fantasy. It's a tall tale that gets told to separate one city and its aspirations from other cities and from the rest of human history, for that matter. I've been able to confront this tall tale, actually, largely through getting to know the city of Dubai. That might sound strange to some of you, but let me explain. Showpiece City, How Architecture Made Dubai was a book that I released this past fall. I call it new, even though it's defined my life for many, many years. You could say it has been a project of love. And I loved working on this book, and I loved getting to know the city of Dubai better through working on it. I've spent months of my life in the city, but I did not write this book as a resident of Dubai. Instead, I wrote it as an architect. And perhaps you might see what I mean by that through today's, um, through today's talk. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to share some aspects of the book with you today. And if after this talk, you decide to read the book, I'd love to hear back about what you think. So I have warned you that I won't be offering today any recipes about how to make a city. If your pencil was ready to take down the necessary ingredients and the correct temperatures, well, maybe you could just take a breath and for a moment, listen along. You might in the end find that you're not so hungry for a new city. This book tells a history of Dubai through architecture and namely through the work of the British architect, John Harris. It is important that you know upfront that the book attempts no complete history of the city of Dubai. In fact, I hope that there will in the future be even more books about this city's urban history with which this book can converse. The year mentioned in the title, 1960, is one I will keep to mostly in my comments today. The book, though, begins before then, and it ends in the early 1980s. But instead of presenting a kind of entire outline of the book, I'm just going to focus on this one year. The year 1960 began with an airplane that flew over the city in early January, and that airplane captured aerial images like this one atop which John Harris would draw the city's town plan. The aerial image would shepherd the ongoing work on new city, on new buildings, on the telephone lines being laid, the water lines, electricity lines, and eventually would provide the ways for Harris's 1960 town plan to lead, uh, to provide the, the first asphalt roads for the city. All of these efforts in 1960 were mostly designed by British men. And they are truly important to, design, to the design for the city. But today I'd like to reach beyond these so-called scripted paths and look toward how Dubai was already a city by then, and a global one at that. 
For a place to be global, it must be connected to trade routes, exchanges of ideas, and to forces that make the ground sometimes feel eternally unstable, where you're never sure of what the next boatload will bring with it. With a tall tale of a title and without a recipe to share with you today, I can offer you, though, a folk tale. And this way, perhaps we can get started. The one I'm thinking of has origins that might be from the shores of the Mediterranean or could come from the deforested farmlands of current-day France and Hungary. I know the tale as stone soup. It's the one where a hungry huckster, a trickster, arrives in a village where no one will feed him for free. To survive, he masterminds a con job. He announces to his stingy fellow human beings that he will make a delightful soup from only water and a stone. The villagers are dumbfounded by this idea. They've never heard of such a cuisine and are more curious than they are actually hungry. They approach the hungry wanderer with firewood, spices, vegetables, and meats to flavor this new exotic soup. In the end, a whole village enjoys the best soup that they have ever tasted. The folktale has a moral meaning, usually something about sharing and about community. But perhaps you could have an alternative reading of it today. You could read that the soup is the modern city, made, of, made up of that medley of thrown-in ingredients coming from multiple hands. The deadweight stone, on the other hand, at the bottom of the pot, absorbing valuable heat and also everyone's attention, could be the master plan a design for a city. Looking back at this image, the pencil marks on this aerial photo do eventually become the roundabouts on Harris's town plan. These in turn become the nexuses of human interaction in the city. But did design deliver a city? Is the stone or the master plan an essential ingredient here? I think the answer is both yes and no. Before going further into this question, I'd like to share something with you that's rather recent. It was on CNN. Phil, Dunn, Phil Dunn, a Canadian landscape architect, has taken an oath, according to this report, and to whom we do not know, to eat only what is produced inside his gated community, sustainable city in Dubai. In this segment, he's picking and eating his own sustenance, and he catches fish at a local fish farm. He will do this, he says, for one whole year. Mr. Dunn explains that it is important we know where our food comes from, and that is sound advice. And for him, that means eating only what can be found on this three square kilometer development in Dubai. I admire Mr. Dunn's resolve. And there are questions though uh, that, that I struggle to understand about it. For one, is this an actual news item on CNN? Or is it more like product placement? Or like what you might know as an advertorial, that fuzzy world between reporting and promoting that coverage of Dubai in the 1960s actually helped invent. It's not the PR friendly oath or even the life as an exhibition angle that I'm curious about here. It's this fantastical idea that Dubai can be self-sustaining. Here we have a Canadian who most likely enjoys his years in Dubai, often with a feel of a working vacation, who probably uses time here to travel and experience other cultures, and who will most likely have to move away before long. 
Here he's claiming he will live off the land. Never mind he has traveled thousands of miles to be here. Sustainability here is grounded in the mythological notion that people living off a land do not ever rely on other lands as well. How can it be that Dubai, a city that exists today if only because of its global connections, gets pitched as an autonomous, self-sustaining bubble? There's something I'd like to ask of you today. It is this, that I'd like for you to raise at least one eyebrow high enough so that it's registered by others around you whenever you hear someone make a simplistic assumption about the city of Dubai. And your first eyebrow raised can be directed at me during the questions. And then after me, be on the lookout for anyone who might proclaim something like, Dubai was once a sleepy fishing village, or that Dubai has risen from the sands, or that there was once nothing there. Maybe there could be a pact among us here online, the pact of the raised eyebrow, the pact to question any creation myth that's put before us about the city of Dubai. So let's look at Showpiece City. I'll be sharing with you some pages from the book, and I'd like to start on page 24 with this image that I find really wonderful. So wonderful, in fact, that it's already been lifted from the book and given its own life on someone's social media account. And for all the wrong reasons, though. It was shared and liked by hundreds of people, I believe, along with a wistful message about a simpler and slower past. I'd like to correct that misinterpretation today. The photograph captures a sailor. Maybe he's a trader. He could be East African, South Asian, or Arab, or Iranian, or he may identify with multiple places attached to the Arabian Sea and Indian Ocean. His clothing may tell us something about where he was born, but maybe less about that and more about his favorite ports of call. For me, his identity, identity remains unplaceable, as any I might encounter in Dubai today, where one gets often easily caught in playing the game of placing humans and their attire, most often with little more than fictional results. The photograph was probably taken by a British man working for a British oil company. And the misinterpretations of this image fit nicely with the way uh, the city was being f uh, framed by British officers in the 1950s. It was being framed as a place forcefully and yet delightfully cut off from the modern world, cut off from modern sentiments like steel ships, lead paints, and frozen foods. The man's stance is both resolute and elegant. At first, I thought he stood on land, but indeed he has been photographed on a boat. And like his biography, biography therefore, he himself is actually in motion and the cargo around him reveals a livelihood founded in motion. You might see that the small crates are stamped tomato paste, and the exporter's name is also there, Renata. I have found that there are packaged food companies with that same name in current-day Bangladesh, the UK, and Brazil. All three of these places were linked to Dubai in trade well before 1960. This cargo is aboard what might be called an Abra, 
You can see the boat's captain in the left margin, barely. In Dubai, cargo was continuously being transmitted from larger boats further at sea to smaller boats and then yet again to even smaller boats like this one. All of these kinds of boats made up the city's horizons and waterways, and they also defined the city's topography, which turned out to be just as mobile and malleable as its waters. The larger boat in the background, with the expansive sail, I believe, falls into the broad categorical term for a family of boats, the Tao. The Tao is a word used by those who don't know the maritime lingo, like me. It encompasses around 50 kinds of seafaring vessels that stitch together South Asia, the Arabian Peninsula, and East Africa. Just the word Tao says something about Dubai. Its etymological roots are unsettled at best. It might originate, the word, in an Indian dialect. An Arabic dictionary, though, might tell you that its roots are placed in Swahili. Conversely, a Swahili dictionary might tell you that its origins are in Arabic. Tao defies etymological origins as if it's from no place and every place at once. That's not an unfamiliar observation you can hear about life in Dubai. Most arriving goods made their way to the interiors of souks, on men's shoulders, on beasts of burden, and on top of wheels of whatever sort. There, in the souks, they would be made for sale, or likely prepared for what was called re-export. Already by 1960, these souks, seemingly so simple, seemingly so of another era, were essentially globally linked. Western dis diplomats and journalists often referred to Dubai as a sleepy fishing village or a sultry backwater. Both of these labels are misleading, and they should be dismissed upon being heard. Dubai was not sleepy. There was not enough sustenance on the ground to warrant anyone's indolence. There were minimal returns on Dubai's negligible exports at the time, which included dried fish, mother of pearl, and even the collection of animal droppings to be sold as fertilizer for other people's land. Merchants had to keep alert to the slightest potential of demand niches in the region so that they could keep Dubai alive. As of 1950, if anyone was living off the land, they were getting by on produce from India, rice from Burma and Iran, sugar at the time still strictly rationed by the UK, wheat and barley were coming from Iran and Iraq, flour and canned goods from Australia, while textiles came from Japan and India, coffee from Calcutta and Yemen, and water pumps from Great Britain. By 1954, Dubai Harbor's turnover had likely already surpassed those of ports in Oman and Iran. And still, without electricity, this city went dark each night. Only then could the people of Dubai sleep, in a city that retreated into itself until daylight returned. British officials rarely acknowledged Dubai as a city. They more often referred to it as an entrepot, a word that means literally a place between ports, or returning to the Latin base, between places. Dubai, the in-between, the undefined, the liminal, a purposely haphazard condition open to modification. 
As an entrepot, Dubai was framed as a quick, easy, and often, often dubious site for profit. Its trade game was called re-export, a low overhead profit scheme that required only the space and labor to move goods from one boat to the next. And of course, the scheme needed and of course, the scheme also needed the connections to multiple places in the world. Dubai's merchants, a collection of Arab, Iranian, and South Asian family businesses, had to learn to profit through the cracks of a, of a, of a fractured British policy, which at the time was ensconced in these buildings on Dubai Creek, what was called the political agency. For today, I'm not going to cover in detail the unilateral treaty Dubai was forced to share with Great Britain. It's discussed more in the book. But for now, it should be said, British influence was double. After more than a century of restricting Dubai's global reach, or at least trying to restrict its reach, the British government started to encourage it in the 1950s. And this was to be done with no burden on the British economy. In fact, it could be something done that could bring a profit as well to the British economy. In lieu of oversight by the British Foreign Office, private British consultants were pressed upon Dubai's leadership uh, to set forward uh, modernization programs. These are screenshots from a recent Netflix series posted by the artist and critic Hin Mizena. The subtitles belong to Fran Lebowitz, who laments before the camera the Dubai skyscrapers are being pasted in Manhattan, which is in a model uh, in front of her. She acknowledged that Dubai's towers owe credit to earlier ones in Manhattan. I appreciate that Leibowitz realizes that origins and destinations can be inverted. But in my opinion, she doesn't go far enough. The word processing concept of copy-paste has been used all too often to describe Dubai's architecture. And now, thanks to Dubai, thanks to Dubai it can also describe Manhattan's architecture. That notion that Dubai bought a port or a skyscraper is grounded in such an idea, as if architecture can be produced with a control key command. Developers, though, call it a turnkey operation. I'm sure you've heard assertions that other places are becoming like Dubai, that they've been Dubaiified or what have you. Beirut, Panama City, St. Petersburg, they've been described as becoming Dubai. The next Dubai or the new Dubai is a term you hear, like this one, Gwadar in Pakistan. This is a good arena, arena for enacting this proposed pact of mine, the pact of the raised eyebrow. If next time you encounter one of these assertions, recall the definition of an entrepot, a place between places, the in-between. To accuse Dubai as the source of architectural whimsy and as the source of capitalist fantasies of planned profit, that is to deny that ideas are multivalent and in motion. It is to deny that Dubai's geographic, social, and economic identities are, like any other places, intrinsically fluid. 
Showpiece City recounts how the construction of hospitals were once framed as purchases, no assembly required. Again, they were called turnkey developments. From the London offices of the experts, so on one side of the world were the London offices of experts, where projects were framed as a play, as framed as as um, pursuits of hard work and pursuits toward earned profits. On the other side of the world, however, at the site itself in Dubai, or in the case of this drawing in Doha, the building simply appears effortlessly as if it rose from the sands. Portraying development this way erases the necessary exchange of ideas. It also ignores that there was an urban competitiveness among and also shaping Arab Gulf cities at the time. Also, such a statement shuns the technological advancements gained from one project were going to be exploited in the next. This drawing is of the state hospital, not for Dubai, but for Doha, as I mentioned. And it was completed in 1957 and designed by John and his wife, Jill Harris. This project helped launch uh, Harris's career in the Arab Gulf region. As I mentioned, British policy at the time preferred the angling of private British consultants, experts, to pursue urban development work in the Gulf. The history behind this policy is not as simple as the British government working as some kind of placement agency, employment agency. The Foreign Office, the British Foreign Office, was not organized well enough to work that way. Harris's arrival in Dubai did not result from his success in Doha. There is, of course, a connection, but it is not cause and effect. There was no clear British government policy for delivering one, an expert from one place to the next. But there is some circumstantial evidence that Dubai's ruler at the time, who selected Harris for the Dubai town plan, that he, because of this project in Doha, that he chose Harris. And that, I think, is where the story gets interesting. So yes, Doha's hospital was designed by British hands, outfitted with British manufactured supplies and sheathed in British steel. And this brochure for the hospital's opening, also produced in the UK, makes these points explicitly clear. There's something else, though, that's also clear with this brochure. Dubai's ruler in 1959 was Sheikh Rashid bin Said al Maktoum, and he had already visited this hospital by then. In fact, he was in possession of this very brochure before he was ever convinced that he needed to hire a town planner. So yes, Rashid might have learned to appreciate British medical advancements, but this brochure took on other meanings and captured other sources of influence as well, specifically those having to do with impressions and appreciation circulating among people living in Arab Gulf cities. And these lived realities of impressions and appreciation, these lived realities fueled rivalries between Gulf cities. These meanings are apart from the colonial-like influence of Great Britain, even if they do intersect. Therefore, again, any idea of copy-paste must be deferred. Circulation, though, could be a better metaphor. It can be argued that many people in the Gulf talked about this project, not as a British hospital, but as a Qatari achievement. In other words, for Dubai's leadership, London was not the example Doha was. 
The hospital was evidence that the Qatari government was using newfound wealth and an intensifying sense of independence to provide for its residents. I could imagine Dubai's ruler noticing how this model of the hospital rests above a pair of Qatari flags on this brochure. By means of Doha, an idea was taking hold in Dubai, namely that infrastructure shapes more than just the physical aspects of the city. It can also shape the social and, and cultural aspects of that city. Beyond just Doha, there was also Kuwait, Bahrain, and Sharjah that were compelling influences on Dubai's future growth and its further establishment of a government outside British influence. This is an example of Dubai's reach to the world throughout, uh, sorry, this is an example of Dubai's reach to the world through regional contacts. I will provide my final evidence that Dubai was a global city in 1960 through the lens of John Harris's first project for Dubai, the 1960 Town Plan. In 1959, when Harris was hired to produce this drawing, town planning was a true force in British politics and society. New towns, as they were called, were being opened throughout the UK. Yes, these were enacted fables of how to make a city and led to the creation of new British town centers like Stevenage and Crawley. The new town as a model, as an idea, was being proposed by British architects and planners, not just for Britain, but also throughout the world, including Kuwait. It was handled as an export, something like a tin can of tomato paste. There were plenty of town planners in London ready to work in Dubai in 1959, the year that the British Foreign Office deemed that Dubai needed a town plan. There was, however, no active search process to identify candidates. Instead, there was a botched effort to employ the creators of Kuwait's town plan. In the end, the commission went to the young and relatively unknown John Harris. Even if he had relevant work experience in the Gulf, and he did, there is little evidence that British officials considered Harris's experience in Doha and elsewhere. In fact, his hiring had likely much to do with the fact that Sheikh Rashid realized, Sheikh Rashid being again the, the ruler of Dubai at the time, uh, he was the one that probably realized that the man before him applying for the job to create Dubai's town plan was the very man who had designed Doha's famous hospital. Dubai's ruler might not have grasped just yet what a town plan could bring to his city, but he for sure knew what a hospital could do. Harris's town plan proposed the pasting of a British new town on Dubai. It includes ex expected ingredients of a British new town plan, like roundabouts, some of the examples from the details you can see here. Roundabouts uh, proved an efficient means of directing Dubai's traffic without electricity and therefore without traffic lights. And Harris deployed also other concepts, including the neighborhood unit. In Dubai, every neighborhood unit protected by the roadways surrounding it was to include between two and 300 households, all living in one-story walled-in garden villas. The neighborhood unit itself was going to be a packageable planning term. The American planner Clarence Perry and Amer the American planning enthusiast Lewis Mumford are often credited for this concept. 
But before them, there was the British forefather of urban planning, Ebenezer Howard, who wanted to compartmentalize people, residents of a city, into what he called wards, like prison wards or hospital wards, which operated very much like the notion of the neighborhood unit. Every neighborhood unit was to be self-sustaining, a standard-sized compartment for the city's white-collar workers. Each unit reproduces self-sameness and self-sufficiency with an equal supply of municipal amenities like recreation, schools, and retail shops, you know, where you get your food. Happy modern life was to be dealt out evenly, like a game of cards. You could live a life without ever leaving your neighborhood unit. There are shared similarities between the neighborhood unit and CNN's portrayal of a well-organized life on a leash at Dubai's sustainable city. And perhaps like me, you see similarities with that supposedly new idea going around lately, the so-called 15-minute city, where anyone should have access to everything they need within a 15-minute walk. The new town, no longer new at this point, somehow keeps coming back to us. If you look at Dubai's current road network of this same area today, it has been laid out nearly exactly the way Harris had it drawn. The major roads were designed to separate different neighborhood units with their garden villas and, and you know, allotted amenities. But instead, they house today an interlinked cosmopolitan metropolis. Plots meant for suburban-style homes were converted into a monopoly board for real estate investments that provided quickly rented flats for arriving populations. There was a real estate frenzy stirred by local and foreign investors. A dense thicket of mid-rise mixed-use buildings was built in an internationally fueled real estate boom. A neighborhood unit system could have never kept up with Dubai's arriving populations. So to answer the question, is Dubai based on the neighborhood unit? Is it based on a master plan? The answer would have to be yes and also no. Multiple answers are correct because the story, the story to and from Dubai is multivalent. Dubai, like any city, rises from the in-between. The last photograph I'm going to share with you today before we uh, turn it over to a more of a discussion is taken from the top of the nearly finished Dubai World Trade Center in 1979, so about a two decades after the year I've been talking about. The view looks toward the southern horizon by way of the Abu Dhabi Road in the direction of Abu Dhabi. This road was later called Sheikh Zayed Road. I understand that upon a first examination, this image seems to capture an edge, some kind of frontier where profit-driven and sometimes optimistic dreams of, new, of a new city were going to be extended. But I hope today's talk might influence the way you look at such a photograph and at Dubai in general, whether in the 1960s, 1970s, or today. Could you, for example, look at this image and see Dubai emerging not from the edges, but from some kind of in-between? Like the man in the first photo I shared with you today, the man on the boat, Dubai is constructed in motion with constant negotiation of the past and the future, and in the hope that the in-between can be the just right stance for balance on waters 
that somehow are always moving. I'd like to thank once again the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for inviting me today. Uh, and once again, Nahid Ahmed uh, for this opportunity. I'm also terribly grateful that uh, Deepak Unikrishnan, I hope is going to come back on um, to begin a bit of a, a discussion. And I really hope to, uh, to hear from some of you. Um, Deepak, before we start, uh, I just, there was a couple notes I wanted to share, especially for the people in the UAE. Um, I've heard from a lot of people that they can't find the book in the UAE. And I do have some good news that, um, uh, as I've heard this, this last couple of days that, um, uh, bookstores like Kino Kania and also the, the brilliantly curated bookshelf at the Jamil Arts Center, uh, will soon have the book, uh, in stock. So be on the lookout for that. Todd, do you want to talk about what's happening at Jimmy in the fall as well? And we'll just get that out of the way and move quickly to questions after. Sure, yeah. Um, I'm working currently with uh, a great team at Jamil Arts Center uh, in, in Dubai on a, an exhibition that's going to be opening at the end of September. Uh, and actually, what's really for me personally gratifying this for with this exhibition is we're going to be uh working with and displaying some of the images especially color images um that i used as references for this book um and so i wasn't a i i went with a black and white book um and so this will be a kind of a way to kind of give some literally the daylight to many of these photographs which have been you know spending decades of their lives in someone's um, closets. So um, that will should be opening at the end of September. And for those of you who would like to ask our questions, please use the Q&A box and, and I will do my best to facilitate. Um, and since um, I'm moderating this, I'm going to ask the first question if that's okay. Um, Todd, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share an interview that you did with Jadalia with everyone who's attending this, because I found the um, interview fascinating and I'm going to quote you now. So this would be the first raised eyebrow moment, perhaps. <laughs> this is um, Dubai seems to exist in an echo chamber that allows observers to hear and experience what they want, end quote. Uh, so I'm curious, as an architect, what did you experience? Because you've also mentioned that you sort of thought about Dubai through architecture, uh, and that's that's interesting to me. Um, and and the reason I'm asking this is because I'm also curious whether there are consequences because of the hustle and the bustle. Uh, and not being specific on purpose, because I'm curious about what your interpretation is going to be. And this is related to a question that was asked in the box as well as to why Dubai, why not Kuwait, why not Bahrain. Um, why did you find your calling in Dubai? So that's basically yeah. five questions, even though I said I'll start off with one. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, this, um, uh, this idea of the echo chamber, I'll, I'll, I'll touch upon that. I think one of the things, um, well, maybe I'll take a step back and begin with why Dubai and come to that, if that's okay. It's a little bit of a, an autobiography, uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep it short. You know, I, I came to Dubai for my the first time as an architect. I, I was working for OMA in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and I was sent there. I was like any other kind of traveling consultant, traveling architect. Um, 
the, the difference for me was I was working for a firm that actually sent me not to represent them in getting contracts, but just to go and, and look and talk and figure out like what literally what was the context in which they were going to be working. Um, and so that's how I got started looking at uh, Dubai. Uh, so in, in terms of, you know, why not Kuwait? Why not Doha? Uh, it, it simply just work took me there. Uh, and then further work, you know, when you write a book like this, I think the most important thing is, is that you have sources and especially good and, and, and ripe are sources that no one else has used or few people have used or you're using them in a different way. And with my work at OMA, you know, I, uh, I was in touch uh, with John Harris's family, uh, his son, Mark Harris, uh, to whom I'm truly indebted and for, for opening the archives up to me and, and for trusting me uh, on this book. Uh, that's when I realized there was a book uh, to be written. Um, at the same time, I was seeing, you know, back to the echo chamber, I was, you know, working in Dubai. And I, I think one of the things that I find really fascinating is that sometimes you can, there's a, there's a kind of news item or a kind of PR trick or a rumor that, and I'm saying this in a very simplistic way, let's say there are two sides of the world. They're, they're the people who criticize very quickly Dubai and they're the people who think it's the best thing in the world. And both of them can kind of jump on the same piece of evidence as their evidence. I'll give you an example, Dubai Inc. So this concept of Dubai Inc is actually, you could find that it's, you know, becomes a, 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 an idea it actually in the mid seventies. Uh, it, it's kind of attached to actually the ideas of, of British journalists looking ideas of small government. And, you know, th there's a, there's, perhaps a faction that can look at the notion of Dubai government working like an incorporation as a, as a company, as some, as, as an expression of, of, of efficiency and directness and a political action. Uh, but then there's the other side that can look at it and say, that's just such proof that it's, you know, a, you know, a neoliberal hell uh, for many people. Um, but then one also needs to look at this idea of Dubai Inc., is it really? I mean, let's talk to people who actually live in Dubai. Do you experience bureaucracy? Do you experience a kind of municipal Emirati, uh, Emir sorry, Emirate um, scale bureaucracy? There is a government, you know? Um, and I guess that's an example of where kind of you can hear what you want to hear. Um, but it's kind of what I'm saying is the raised eyebrow. Let's raise our eyebrow and, and kind of look at this a bit more closely. There's a question in here from someone I'm assuming grew up in the city. Um, the name is Sri. I'm just going to read it out loud for everyone's okay. sake. So at the point of thinking about the quote unquote inspiration or the idea of the city wanting to again, quote, copy something, I get the hospital example. However, my memory as someone who grew up here was the constant rhetoric of looking up to cities like New York City, London. For example, when the metro came out, I remember hearing adverts that went like, we now have a metro, like major cities like London and New York. So I guess the question is about aspiration. Um, so I know the talk was about 1960, but if you would permit us to sort of linger around 2021, if we could, 
why not be confident now? What is the way aspiring to be? And I'm curious about what your response to this is because you talked about stone soup. And when you were referencing the story in my head, I'm thinking Dubai is the traveler going door to door requesting ingredients. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm curious, where is Dubai now? And there are a couple of questions related to that as well, the contemporary setting, but I'll get to that. I'll feel those. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, where is uh, Dubai now? I guess I'll, I will, uh, I, I really like this um, perspective that Suri's bringing uh, to this, the, the idea that, you know, even though, you know, we can find that Dubai's uh, sources of, of, of people, of ideas, of, of markets, you know, are much broader than New York or London. In fact, you know, New York, aside from being some sort of, you know, uh, PR model, I, I, I don't know if we can really say that it's that big of an influence. I think London has been in a certain ways. And in fact, I do look at London uh, in the book. Uh, I, I, um, I mean, it's not the only way to look at how um, a city is influenced by another city, but one way to look at it is the leader of, of Dubai, Sheikh Rashid, who I discussed, you know, would go to London on these trips and they would sometimes be government uh, official visits, sometimes personal visits, sometimes an incredibly blurring of the two, mostly that, but nevertheless, he was shown things. He was shown factories. He was shown, um, uh, kind of the way things worked, let's say. Um, and these things weren't necessarily producing, you know, immediate contracts, uh, you know, he would take a ride on the metro, um, the underground, and he was thrilled by this. But, you know, this didn't, you know, get enacted as a, um, a metro in, in Dubai. You know, it, we all know when the, the, Dubai, the Dubai metro was, is from this century. Um, so I think, obviously, yes, London, you know, maintains a kind of an aspirational place but I think we also had to look beyond this this kind of um, PR heavy um, image, and I and I don't mean to, to to dismiss it. I'm very much a believer, and we need to be reading this stuff. I I read these press releases and these kind of promotional articles. I read them like doctoral theses. I think that we need to understand the kind of the 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 notions and the words the word the vocabulary that's being used um and you'll find the vocabulary is not so different than other cities uh whether they're the so-called cities to aspire to or the ones that are aspiring to be those cities I, they actually become uh interlinked and that's the reason why i use that fran lebowitz quote from about manhattan she sees that there's this back and forth but i think we need to stir the soup up and, and, and watch how everything is moving. I'll try not to make any more soup puns or soup puns. <laughs> but let's return to the 1950s and 1960 for a minute. And there's a question from Sultan Sohan al Qasimi from Boston. Good morning to you. Uh, it says, thank you, thank you, Tom, for a great talk, as always. You mentioned that John Harris's wife, Jill, was involved in the design of the hospital in Doha in the late 1950s. Is there any evidence that she was also involved in other projects in the Gulf, mainly the UAE. And if I could also linger on this for a moment, because I'm curious about this too, whether the other spaces or cities in the Khalij were paying attention uh, and what kind of attention were they paying? Partly because on page 28 
uh, of your book, you have um, a quote here from a gentleman whose name is Rupert Hay, a former British official in neighboring Bahrain, conjuring up the Dubai he wanted to remember. And then there's an entire paragraph about the Sukh and what he believes the Sukh ought to be. And it's as though I'm reading something from Aladdin conjured up, you know, hundreds of years ago. In other words, he fetishizes the Sukh. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this question from um, Sultan Sadal Khasmi is really interesting, partly because I'm curious, um, because there's an expectation from empire that the city in the Khalij or in the Gulf needed to behave a certain way. But then clearly um, cities in the Gulf, particularly like Dubai, wanted to, I wouldn't say fight back, but wanted to do something different. Would you agree mm -hmm. or how can we think about this? Well, I think there's a, a thesis in, in the in the question. I, I guess just really quickly, I, I don't have much more information on Jill Harris's work. I she she studied as an architect. Uh, she was involved in the the entry design for the hospital. I, I tend to think that she stepped away from actually being part of the practice after that. Um, uh, but going more toward how. Um, not so much these British consultants, but more of these kind of British officials. So government representatives, how they were framing um, uh, Dubai and specifically the Souks. I mean, this Rupert Hay quote is just an unbelievable one. It's just, I mean, and there are, there are other times when just things are just kind of romanticized to kind of almost comical levels. I think one of the, the most shocking things to me is that listening to, uh, you know, I, I spoke about the political agency and this was a, a kind of a physical building, a physical compound that was made in Dubai on the Creek. Uh, and there were a number of British officials living there. Um, and this, uh, began in the mid fifties, the offices moved from Sharjah to, uh, Dubai in 1954, I think. And so, you know, the move to Dubai represented this moment where British policy was going to take a switch, literally going to, to go in a different direction. Uh, whereas it had been up all about kind of holding it down, keeping it, you know, literally from having contact with the rest of the world, unless through British um, officials, to suddenly needing to open it up and encourage development. So the people who were being hired by the British government to come to this so-called hardship post to do this job, you know, to, to bring the water lines to, you know, after making sure that none of this is happening, suddenly within 10 years, it was about putting in water lines, telephone lines, improving Dubai Creek as a modern harbor, um, yeah, helping with an airport in, in a certain way. These British men were modernizers. And yet sometimes I, you know, because I started a bit too late, uh, many of them had passed away. I did speak with one and he's, uh, I report a bit on the interview with him in the book. Uh, and I'll use him as an example. He was the third or fourth political agent, James Craig. And I kept pushing him and wanting to know, like, I believe you were there when the first asphalt roads in Dubai were laid. What was that like? He couldn't tell me. And he wanted to tell me about, you know, camping out at night with the Sheikh of Umar Kuwain and eating, you know, um, roasted goat under the stars and, and how they got stuck in Sabha. And 
it was very much, you know, even the memory itself begins to erase the kind of role that these these men ultimately had in Dubai's modernization. So there's this kind of almost Jekyll and Hyde sense to, you know, being hired to to modernize, but at the same time wanting to continue to look and see that that you're part of a place that hasn't been been touched by the modern world in so long. Todd, could we linger on the photographs for a second? Um, towards the end, if you scroll down, you'll see a question from Jasmine Suleiman. Thank you for the talk. I work for Akasa, the photo archive at NYU Abu Dhabi. So sympathize with the example you gave of appropriation and misrepresentation of photographs, especially on social media. But I'm interested in how to raise one's eyebrow slash counter misrepresentation and orientalist language when used by quote, official entities. An example is the official promotional video for Abu Dhabi that is played on every Etihad flight. Uh, some quotes, uh, quote, endless like the desert, where it opens like a mirage, it starts with a vision of wise men, end quote. Um, I didn't say it as well as the voiceover actor, but forgive me for that. And I think this question is also sort of related to the first one, but let's tackle this now, and then I'll read out the other one. Uh, I like this question. Uh, I haven't seen this Etihad video, but I will be sure to look for it. Um, yeah, you know, and this this is also getting to an interesting point too, um, where the kind of uh, let's call it a misinterpretation of of history even becomes a kind of. Um, you don't know if it's being done for what, why it's being done. Why we don't know why. Um, I think we know enough, you know, even of Abu Dhabi, uh, to know, you know, what was happening when, in, in certain regards. Um, and I guess I would extend beyond kind of, uh, Jasmine's, you know, reference to these kinds of official, um, sources. I'd also like to, you know, extend that to how images are traded online uh, and just kind of these very quick ways on social media. You know, someone will put up a, a tweet or a uh, Instagram image. And, and I think this even gets more into that misrepresentation and photo literally copy pasting, not of not providing a source, not providing content. And people are just kind of seeing hundreds of these in a day going through their, you know, social media feeds and they're just liking. And there's kind of this and economy of endorphins, really, um, of likes and love and hearts, but no real kind of discussion about what these images mean. And I guess my, you know, response to Jasmine it actually comes from something that I've seen Sultan Al-Qasimi say is just write it down. Just if you have this image in front of you and you can write down what it's saying or what it's saying to you and you're helping to clarify what, where it's from and what it was doing and, and how it can be read and how it should be read or how you read it, then it's just a matter of writing. I, and I, I, and I, strongly believe that in kind of kind of pushing against this kind of flipboard of images being you know shared very quickly um online so todd this question is related to the contemporary and this is by nora asked by nora masuk in relevance to your statement on how a modern city like dubai could be pitched as self-sustaining 
do you think concepts of neo-living like Mazdar city and the sustainable city can be thought of as ecological urbanism or still prototypes? And I'm going to use another question too that was asked by Monica Marx later on. It's about the origin story. In other words, in your talk, you talked about the fishing village sequence. But then Monica Marx is wondering, could you be more specific as to how this myth developed? And I think this is sort of connected to what Nora is asking as well, because you played the Phil Dunn clip. And the first time I saw it, I remember looking at it and going, is that even possible? So Nora's question to repeat in relevance to your statement on how a modern city like Dubai could be pitched as self-sustaining. Do you think concepts of neo-living like Mazdar City and, this, and the sustainable city can be thought of as ecological urbanism or still prototypes? And then the other question about the origin story. I, um, okay, so Master, um, well, let me start with Monica's point about the uh, the narrative of the sleepy fishing village. Um, I don't actually know where, I can't find where, who is the first one to say this, but it is it is something that gets copied a lot. Um, and, you know, you even see um, British officials repeating similar, I, I can't say if British officials use this term or not, but something like it. But you literally see people kind of copying it from one, you know, file portfolio to the next and things just get kind of, for example, there was a really awful description of Sheikh Rashid in Dubai that was kind of pulled out and retyped to hand it out to all the people in London before they met Sheikh Rashid so they, they could recall who he is. And that's also just the way these things get repeated, you know? And then, and then those, those same kind of PR documents is, and I'm talking documents in 1961 as early as then, right? That would somehow get into the hands of, of journalists working for the Times, working for Financial Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post. They would get these pieces of paper and they'd use them for their copy and they would paste into the copy. So, I mean, that's how these things happen. There's, um, in the book, I, I do a really um, kind of slow investigation of the idea that, for example, uh, Sheikh Rashid saved Dubai Creek. This idea of saved the creek and, and that Sharjah, the, the other creek, the other competing harbor, did nothing. People in Sharjah sat around and did nothing while Dubai took action. And this is just a misrepresentation. And, you know, I can, I can pinpoint a, a document in British files where, you know, a, a British political agent, I think the third or fourth one, writes this story down about Dubai doing something when Sharjah sat and did nothing. Um, and, and there begins the myth, you know, uh, and it doesn't get into all the kind of intrigue and political, um, I guess, games that were happening that allowed Dubai's to be preferred by the British government and not Sharjah. So that's, that's a whole 20 page story in the book. So we, I can't get into it too much. Um, in terms of ecological urbanism, I don't, I don't know what ecological urbanism is. I, um, I think my point is about what sustainability is. I think, I, um, you know, and I think oftentimes 
a development or developers or people who, you know, are trying to sell you properties, um, they're trying to make the an idea that's ultimately very complicated, very simple for you. Uh, and not only simple for you, but also convincing enough that you buy in. Um, and in this way, sustainability city, and I don't know much about it other than, you know, a few online searches. So I, I'm not someone who's done my investigations of sustainable city. I can only tell you from what I see in this kind of ploy of, you know, a man who says he's going to eat only what's grown in sustainable city, a pretty daring uh, feat to take on nevertheless. But I think it's very dangerous to suggest that Dubai can be this way. And so it begins, you know, if this is the, if this is the way that this conversation is going to go, then we're actually not having a conversation of how Dubai can be sustainable because Dubai needs its connections to other places. It's historically dependent on those. And that's what I worked on today. And then the question is, you know, can it actually sustain itself uh, by letting go of those connections? And I think that's, that's, I don't know how far this this gimmick is going to go, but it's potentially complicating actually what needs to get done in terms of sustainability. Do you think there are consequences if the gimmick is going on for far too long? What might this I, mean, I don't think this gimmick is going to go too far. Uh, I, th I think there is something interesting about it and, and trying it. But once again, you know, Dubai can be a s sustainable place and yet can, you know, maintain its connections. I mean, there, there is just, it's just impossible to do this without connections to the rest of the world. It's just impossible. Um, I mean, look at the number of people in Dubai who come from somewhere else. That's not an autonomous bubble. It is essentially a, a city that's defined by its connections. And so to say anything otherwise is a trick. So this might be a good segue to the next question, which is towards the end, asked by Mayo Dabak. Thank you for a really interesting talk. It sounds to me that your reading of the archives depict a complex post-colonial condition in Dubai. How does that compare to other emergent global cities in the global south? There was also a question about access. Um, because it's so difficult to get information, how did you discover what you discovered in the process of research? Mm. Um, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to... I guess I'll first say, first of all, when I first set out to write this book, I just thought I was going to find some really nice pictures of John Harris's buildings and talk about these buildings being created in Dubai. And I thought, oh, you know, all I'll do is just find some nice, good urban historical material, and I'll refer to that and write this up, and then I'll be done in a year. And now it's 13 years later. Uh, and, you know, what happened was I didn't find those sources. I, I've had, there are some very good historical resources on Dubai, on the UAE, and I did use those. Those include Fraka Heard Bay um, and, and several other peoples. Um, and then I suddenly realized, though, that, you know, there hadn't been done something that was specifically looking at how a city kind of transformed over time. Um, and so I realized, I guess I had to write it. Uh, and that's, that's what began. And I... Um, you know, you made the point, Deepak, that there's so, the sources are limited. And so I, and I make this point in the book that 
I relied a very great deal on um, sources in in the UK. So old uh, correspondence that was happening uh, between the political agency and the foreign office in London. So that is, and that's that's very skewed. I mean, and I do, and there are people at NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, like Nalita Fukaro, who, you know, whose work, you know, was very helpful for making sure that I understood that I was in very subjective territory. And so um, I had to maintain that kind of um, carefulness uh, in looking at this material. But nevertheless, I was, again, looking at this as an architect and therefore watching how architects were working. And they were getting their you know, signs and um, gestures from that political agency. And so it was, very, it was very important for me to, to see that material. How it connects to other uh, post-colonial or colonial uh, histories uh, and other places in the global South, um, I kind of, well, I shied away from being too engaged in that in this book. I think that it's an entirely different project but I'm very curious how other people might read this book. Um, and I think there's something to be said about um, the Dubai's colonial history in that it, it's very late. Um, so, you know, once again, the political agency opens in 1954. And even though the British uh, had um, kind of political control to certain degrees, you know, since the turn of the century, uh, sorry, since the uh, 1820s even, um, um, it doesn't really rev up until the, the mid fifties. And here we are in the last decades, really, you know, it, it'll be 17 years until the UAE's federation. And so, you know, I, I talked about how, you know, instead of British planning officials having a role, it was really just kind of turning it all over to British planning consultants, trying to get them on good terms, uh, not only with the ruling families, but also with the people who um, had money to invest uh, in Dubai. Um, and so it's a, it's a late colonial moment, but I think a very particular one because you see not only the kind of stories of colonial history that you might read in another history, but you also see how things work today uh, in terms of where expertise comes from, what kind of expertise is listened to, how expertise is framed as something um, outside the state as apolitical. Um, that very much gets established uh, in these years. And uh, thank you for your questions. I'm doing my best here. So this is a two-part Yeah, these are good. The first one is architecture-related. Um, he's curious about the role of Japanese modern architects within these aspirations that you've mentioned, thinking particularly about the 70s and the 80s. The World Trade Center in Manhattan was cited as an example. The second question is the one that I'm interested in because I know very little about architecture. The switch from the 15-minute city to a city that's planned primarily as one that requires four wheels. What influenced that in terms of aspirations as something can be pointed to? Mm. Um, Japan. Um, it's a very... I haven't seen this, uh, the kind of Japanese role, not only in Dubai, um, but much stronger in other places in the Gulf. 
excuse me, other places in the Arabian Peninsula, especially Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Kenzu Tange, you know, makes a really uh, famous, uh, designs a famous airport in Kuwait. There, um, there, there is some rather good interviews about the metabolists in the book, I believe, called The Metabolists. Uh, it was um, created by um, Kayoka, Kayoka Ota and Ram Kohas. So I'm not promoting my former employer, but th there are some nice interviews about that. And you begin to see that um, Japanese expertise, uh, it begins to be suggested, and I, and I don't know how far it can go, but it, Japanese expertise becomes this kind of alternative to the, to the white expertise of Europe and North America. I think that's a very quick way to reference that. I really like the reference to the World Trade Center. Um, uh, uh, which, um, actually is, um, was a, a direct inspiration for the World Trade Center in Dubai. Um, actually John Harris wanted it to be twin towers, um, and kept holding on to the idea that it would be a twin tower project and even early facade, um, studies for the building, uh, almost mimicked the kind of, um, really kind of gothic-like uh, columns of, of the building. Uh, what was the second question? The second question was about the 15-minute city to one where, I mean, you need wheels in Dubai, uh, if I were to put it in layman's terms. I'm right. able to, as you know, we could walk from place to place back in the day in what we call the old city. But even back then, I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s, if you're going to Dubai, you needed wheels. Um, and it's becoming even worse now to a certain degree. So I guess the question is whether the transformation is useful slash interesting. I, I don't know, but I'm curious about your thoughts on this. And this is coming from someone who doesn't drive, by the way. So yeah. I know. I <laughs> um, well, uh, I mean, some of the observations that I do have about Dubai's development as a car city, you know, as a kind of automobile centric city, um, come from Harris's own observations. So he, he creates the first town plan in 1960. Uh, in 1965, he provides a kind of text, uh, to that plan. And in 1971, he presents a second, uh, plan really it was called a development review i think uh and in those the the two letter documents he talks about cars uh in the 65 document uh he's saying it's still a pedestrian centric city and and it's working that way in 1971 uh he he notes that it is now at the moment where it is transitioning to an automobile centric city um and says you know it can continue to go this way uh, there's there's enough road building expansion to to uh, accommodate all these new cars um, but there will eventually need to be something. In fact, in the 1971 plan, there is mention of a monorail. There's mention of a bus system, um, more than the bus system that already existed, which was more like the, the kind of vans, the white vans that we know today. 
Um, so yeah, I guess I, I, I tend to, to believe Harris that it was around 71 that we begin to see this transition. Uh, you know, this is also a year where federation is, is coming into play where Abu Dhabi wealth is also becoming more, like say, um, uh, spread through the, the seven emirates, or eventually the seven emirates. Um, and so cars are more um, available. It's uh, as late as um, I'd say around 78, uh, you do have complaints that cars are taking over. Um, there's one of the biggest problems, especially toward the, the denser parts of the city, is that any lot that isn't built on that has either been cleared of its buildings or uh, has been cleared of whatever use it used to have, becomes by default parking. Uh, and so just a kind of chaotic sense of car traffic started to take over. Um, one thing I noted, noticed in making the, in working on this exhibition for Jamil Art Center is um, we're kind of setting it up where we're looking at photographs um, around neighborhoods around the creek and also neighborhoods or developments around the World Trade Center, which would have been much further out from the creek. And uh, the images around the creek are often taken by people at foot, on foot. They're taking pictures street level, eye level, and you get to see all this amazing detail of what life was like in these kinds of parts of the city that were, you know, modernizing kind of on their own terms. But if you look at the kind of areas around uh, the World Trade Center, it's all aerials. It's all taken from above because no one, you know, could touch that ground, literally. It was the, it wasn't so much to me, though, about becoming a car-centered city, but becoming an interiorized city. Uh, so in the sense that you didn't need to live your, leave your area, again, like the neighborhood unit. Could we touch upon in-betweenness a little bit? Yeah, I was in class yesterday speaking to my students and we were reading essays about writers presuming Dubai to be a non-place, most of the Khalij to be a non-place. So this question um, is appropriate. It's by, the question is being asked by Amin Mugandam. How do you explain the in-betweenness of Dubai and its evolution in relation with the still ongoing nation state project? both in terms of architectural projects and urban planning. And if I may tack on another question to that, do you think Dubai um, has gone from an anthropole, an in-between place to a non-place? Uh, no, I don't believe it's a non-place. That I can answer very uh, easily. The, the, the first question you had, um, can I'll, you say I'll, it again, or I, I don't see it? I'll repeat it. It's right. It's close to the middle, so I'll repeat it. It's by Amin Mogaddam. How do you explain the in-betweenness of Dubai and its evolution in relation with the still ongoing nation-state project, both in terms of architectural projects and urban planning? Uh, and the ongoing nation state project. So uh, still ongoing, meaning still now today, I, I presume is, is what that is saying. And I think, you know, my raised eyebrow today is very much attached to this uh, question. And I, I think I was going around it, but 
You know, it's now been kind of stated very clearly. And I think that's very much my point um, about kind of not letting go of, of what made these a city like Dubai, Dubai, like why was it able to exist and why does it exist the way it does today? Even though, you know, Dubai has lost that kind of entrepot character that really allowed it to play its own game. Um, I think there are still aspects of that. And, and I get into this in the book where in the, the chapter that looks around 1971, it's a sense of panic in Dubai. Uh, there's a, there's a serious fear that, Dubai is going to, you know, part of that, of course, is losing um, uh, a kind of ascendancy to Abu Dhabi. You know, there, you, every nation has one capital. I mean, that's that's how it goes, right? That's how the game of nation making, nation state goes. And that was obviously going to be Abu Dhabi. Uh, there were talks, actually, even Sharjah, a leader, a ruler of Sharjah suggested that Dubai should be the capital. But yeah, everything was moving in the direction it was going to be Abu Dhabi. And that that was a real kind of existential moment for Dubai. And for good reason. Uh, it was just the moment when uh, petroleum profits were being registered, but also petroleum um, uh, projections were being dramatic, dramatically lowered. Uh, so this kind of wealth was threatened, but, you know, the wealth that had been helped for was threatened, the kind of independence of the city was also threatened. You know, Dubai, I think even according to one report, which I do in the book, had its own national anthem. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Dubai's national anthem. I would love to know if, if someone knows more about this. But, you know, I have a report of it being played one day. You know, that national anthem had to be uh, retired uh, as of December 1971. And so, but yeah, but the question was more about that in-betweenness uh, getting lost. Yes, I think it was slowly getting lost, but also that, you know, the in-betweenness also has to do with fluidity. And yes, you do start to see certain things getting hardened. Uh, the way history is approached uh, begins to get hardened. It has to become a kind of simple understanding of what history is with, you know, and and I think that's one of the things that, that I worry about that, you know, it seems even in my kind of, you know, 15 or so years in Dubai, I, I see there is a kind of a much uh, kind of more curious, there's a greater curiosity I find within, within Dubai, within the UAE and even outside um, of the, the history of modernization and the history, the modern histories of, of cities in the UAE. And I worry that, um, you know, the people, we, we literally just missed many of the people who helped create these places, uh, whether they're from South Asia, whether they're from Europe, whether they're from uh, East Africa and Iran, a lot of these people, you know, have died. Um, and we literally just missed them uh, in terms of uh, interviewing them, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, seeing if they had any papers that we, we could share, uh, they could share in terms of establishing and uh, helping others to interpret what history is. So I don't know if I'm answering this question. It's a tough no, one. The reason I pause is, you know, you just made me remember the family albums. Um, uh, non secular, forgive me. 
Let, let me ask you this question, which I think is not necessarily apt, but is an interesting one. It's by Laura Saf. It's towards the very end. The official rhetoric in Dubai seems to have now shifted from bringing a Western-inspired modernity to the city to shaping the future and going beyond imported, imported models. I think you're right about PR releases and official discourses. Not only are they important, they're also performative, maybe especially in architectural terms. But how do you understand this narrative? Would you consider it as a, a rupture from previous plans? As a kind of self-taught historian, you know, I, I'm, I'm more for the side of non-rupture, that things come back. Uh, even if you think they're broken, they kind of come up through the cracks and, and haunt us later. Um, I, I titled this book Showpiece City, uh, and I, I did that kind of tongue-in-cheek. Um, I kind of thought, oh, there will be people who are interested in, you know, the showboat that Dubai is. Um, but, um, you know, projects even before like skyscrapers, even the World Trade Center, which was called a showpiece, but even before that first skyscraper, hospitals and schools and just basic bank buildings were called showpieces. And I find that fascinating. Um, you know, what is, what is a showpiece? A showpiece is kind of like a showroom model, right? It's, it's kind of a representation of what can be and what will be, and that there are more of these things to come. That's performative. Uh, and so, you know, at, at first, these, these performances are of healthcare, of education, of simply being able to open a bank account and know that your money is going to be safe. These were kind of expressive actions done through architecture. And so I, I don't see a rupture between those moments and today. Um, and so that's when, that's the reason why I, I went with that title, um, imported. So it's about shaping the future, but imported models. I still see the imported models. I mean, even I, Delara say she didn't mention, but like, I mean, for an example would be the 15 minute city, you know, this idea that apparently comes from a Spanish planner in Paris, you know, and apparently the mayor of Paris has signed on to this. And now it's again, you need to look at it as something less than, oh, they did that there, and now we're going to do it here, but more that it's a kind of circulation of ideas, that things move um, from one place to another, and they change on the way. And then when they go leave again, they, they go in some other kind of facet, really. So, Todd, we have five minutes to go. Um, so, the, so, would you like to share pictures with us? Because I know you have an archive of pictures at your disposal that you could share with us, or is there a question that you would like to pick from the 40 that we have? Um, um, entirely your call, because I know you've been talking for a while, um, but I want to make sure that at the end, you decide what you want to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I can, I can go with one more question, maybe. Um, I mean, if it, if it seems like it's a, an image, then I can, I can bring one up. Uh, but yeah, there, I have no kind of final idea that I wanted to share. Um, um, do you want me to pick one or would you sure, like to? Sure, please. Please do the honor, Deepak. Okay. So this is a question from a student, uh, Atma, who goes to NYU Abu Dhabi, um, is a Dubai kid. Since you referred to the sustainable city, I'm curious about your thoughts of the structuring of old Dubai and new Dubai. 
as to whether it was planned or naturally happened. I've read um, most of the book, so I know the answer to this, but over to you. The old parts of the city. I guess it depends on what the old parts of the city are. Um, I mean, there are the kind of very, the areas of, of Naif and, and Bird Dubai and which are much closer to the Creek. Um, in fact, I, I can open up um, maybe a, an image. Let's see. Uh, okay. Uh, I can, well, actually what I'll do is I'll go back to the, um, the master plan, which is also a really beautiful document in the sense that it's also the aerial photograph. So they've, the, the future was literally fused onto um, the present or the recent past. Um, so I'll, I'll share the screen. Uh, if I, well, it's not, I'm, I'm getting nervous with the movement of time here. Okay, here we go. You're okay. Okay, here we, here's the master plan. So if we look into these areas here, so really the kind of uh, areas of, of the city that were generally lived in, in, in the 1950s. Um, I think what's really interesting, if, if I could, I'll just focus on these, is that in comparison to Kuwait's uh, master plan, where the, the planners actually proposed erasing the existing city and starting anew, um, that wasn't proposed for Dubai. And that largely had to do with the fact that Dubai couldn't <laughs> even afford the, the demolition of, of these uh, buildings. And so they were kind of left as they were. Um, and you can see here, unfortunately, I can't um, zoom in for some reason, uh, but you can, um, in the book, if you get the book, <laughs> you can see, um, these kinds of ghosts of lines, uh, where that Harris as the planner is kind of hinting where roads could go, but he's kind of being careful. He's not erasing anything. So roads are actually existing with, with the, the traces of existing homes. And so what happens is there's this kind of process that then comes about, a kind of negotiation between the municipality and the homeowners. And this is this comes a little bit through in, in the book, I think, especially in chapter four, where it really was became a kind of negotiation. So if if the municipality could offer a larger piece of land further out, the owner of that per property, the one who claims it, would make the deal and leave, and then that road could continue. Or that person could say, no, we're not leaving, and the road would have to turn. And so if you go through these kinds of parts of, of Dara, especially, um, you can really have fun kind of trying to figure out what was going on, like which, which um, property owners, you know, would not sell, where do roads, come, you know, suddenly stop, or where does a kind of building suddenly, you know, where, where, where a road, for example, doesn't uh, accommodate automobiles. It can only be um, pedestrian. That comes from not ability, the inability to to acquire that land. And so I find that a really uh, fascinating aspect of, of these parts of the city. Um, Sorry, uh, on the dot at eight, before we end- Yeah, we are. 
quick 30 second pitch about what the Sharjah book is about because someone asked about that. yeah oh yes um yeah so I've been working for several years on another book that will be produced uh, will be coming out later this year uh, just before the summer uh, with, with I've been very honored to be working with uh, Sultan Saud al-Qasimi uh, on a book about Sharjah and toward the end of the writing of Dubai he approached me about this and I was like wow this is exciting I'll be able to kind of use my knowledge of Dubai to you know to to look at the history of of Sharjah and Sultan quickly corrected me that it was an entirely new history that I had to learn uh, in the process of, of making this book. Um, it's a really going to be a gorgeous book, uh, you know, full color. And it also has uh, writing from very well-known authors, including uh, Deepak Unikrishnan uh, and, and others. So we have, you know, lots of... Um, uh, maybe five or six contributors uh, to the book and kind of looking at different ways to look at, at, at Sharjah's um, kind of, I, I guess, uh, modernization just before oil discovery and, and just after, so leading up to about 1980. Okay. Yeah. Um, thank you, all of you, for tuning in tonight. I'm sorry I couldn't get to all the questions. We did our best. Todd's book is available at the Jimmy Lott Center, we're told, if you're in the UAE. Um, there's the exhibition in the fall in Dubai, again, if you're in the UAE. For those of you who are not here, take care, be well. And thank you everyone for coming. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.